The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Uh, as ethical practice. And um, they are rooted uh, squarely in the middle of the Dharma. The Buddha's teaching, the Buddha himself uh, was concerned uh, almost exclusively with the issue of uh, suffering and the end of suffering, or dukkha and the end, the ending of dukkha. The, the dissatisfaction that exists uh, with the conditions of our lives and with the cessation of that dissatisfaction, and that was the, the um, focus of the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is the fact of this dissatisfaction. And that, uh, that dissatisfaction, the Buddha said, is to be understood. We are to understand uh, the nature of that dissatisfaction as profoundly as uh, possible. The second truth is that the is the truth of the origin of that dissatisfaction in a particular kind of grasping of of desiring, uh, a kind of thirsting that is by its nature uh, insatiable. It just arises again and again, even when you think you've satisfied it. Uh, it <laughs> it's um, and the, and this is this type of, of desiring, of craving, is to be abandoned. Uh, and the third truth is the, the uh, I like to think of it as the good news of Buddhism, uh, is that the cessation of dukkha is possible. And the fourth truth is the path, and that is to be realized, the fourth truth is the path to the cessation of this dissatisfaction. Um, which is to be cultivated. And the path is an eightfold path. And although it's an eightfold path, it's really a single uh, path. It's like if you talk about a baseball, for example, you can say it's white and it's covered in leather and it's got red stitching and it weighs, I don't know what it weighs, what does it weigh, a pound, give or take? I don't know. It's one base, it's just a baseball, but those are all different descriptions of it. The Eightfold Path is, is um, different elements of a way of being. <clears throat> and three of those elements, right speech, right action, and right livelihood, are integral parts of the path that leads to the cessation of this dissatisfaction. And... So they are, they are requisites for the ending of, of suffering, for the ending of the dissatisfaction. They're not, from the, from the standpoint of the Buddhist teachings, they are not optional, they're not extra, they're not add-ons. But they also aren't the thing that attracts us to the Dharma, first off anyway. I mean, most people don't say, hey, guess what, they're practicing pre- precepts at IMC, let's go over and see what's, you know, it's, we start with the meditation and uh, um, become more familiar with the Dharma as we, as we uh, practice uh, cultivating mindfulness. Right, mindfulness is one element of the Eightfold Path, but it's, a, it's not a one-fold path, it's an Eightfold Path, and so all of the elements are uh, essential. Um, and so the five 
the, the five precepts, are, which are rules of practice, um, basically explicate or flesh out uh, or give some measure to uh, right speech and right action. And right livelihood is um, what we're going to get to in about 20 minutes. <laughs> um, but right speech and right action uh, manifest as precepts. I'll just run through them quickly and so that you are familiar with the, with the territory. The first is the, the practice the, for the purposes of training to adopt a practice to refrain from taking life. And the second is for the purposes of our training to refrain from taking what is not freely given. And the third is that's usually presented is to refrain from harmful sexuality. And the fourth is to refrain from false speech. And the fifth is to refrain from the use of drugs and alcohol that lead to heedlessness. And these are, um, when we hear the precepts, because of our conditioning in the West, and you know, not being, not being, uh, having grown up in the East, I'm not sure, but for us, it's pretty hard not to hear them as commandments, as right and wrong, good and bad, things you should do, shouldn't do. And, and you often hear um, people talking about um, breaking a precept, I broke a precept, and, uh, you know, or you can't break the precepts, or you shouldn't, um, we should follow the precepts. Um, But the precepts are rules of, of training for practice in the same way that uh, the breath is a focus for our attention when we're sitting. Um, the precepts are to be kept in mind for purposes of practice, and, if, and you, can't, you can't break them. Um, I think I, I talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about my son-in-law, who's a He's a triathlete, and he's a pretty serious triathlete. So in, in order for him to get the opportunity to go out and run and ride his bike and swim for 12 or 14 hours straight, <laughs> he, uh, he, he works out every morning. So he gets up, and at 5 o'clock, he's out on his bike. For an, and his rule of training is every morning. At 5 o'clock, he's out for an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half, and he's... You know, it's a rule of training. If he doesn't go one morning, has he broken the rule? Well, I suppose you could say, but he's actually just not practicing that day. He's just not, you know. So this is not, precepts are not um, measured about, in terms of right or wrong because they stand on the Eightfold Path. Their purpose is to lead us towards the attenuation of, if not the end of, suffering, of of dukkha, of the dissatisfaction that exists for our lives. So that's the purpose of them, is for rules of practice which will lead us to the cessation. Um, they are um, something to, to keep in mind in our day-to-day, -day. and they actually serve as, as tools. They, they certainly do function as, um, uh, as a gift of safety uh, to, to other beings when we, when we adopt a, uh, 
we make a resolution not to take life or not to harm other beings um, through speech or action. Um, and in that sense, they do reflect <clears throat> uh, the, the virtuous behavior of an awakened being to, to not act in a way that would, be, that would be harmful. But they also are tools for insight and tools for investigation because for each one of these precepts, each one of these rules, I can show you an example uh, of a situation where, maybe I can, of a situation where actually adhering strictly to the precept would be unethical. And I think the example that I used uh, about speaking falsely was that if the Nazis knock on the door and say, is Anne Frank here? Do you say, you got me? I can't tell a lie. I took a precept. She's in the attic behind the fake bookcase. That's clearly an unethical response. If someone's drowning in a canal and you see a coil of rope in the back of a truck, do you say, well, I can't take it because it wasn't offered? Or do you just grab it and throw it out to them? So actually what, what the rule is doing is inviting by having, by having adopted the rule as personally, is that it's inviting investigation into what, in this situation, in, this, in each or any particular situation, uh, leads to the attenuation of dukkha. It's not measured in terms of bright line right or wrong. It's, 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 um, it pokes you towards insight into into dukkha which is to be understood according to the according to the buddha um, you know we're we're not and we're not we're not we're not saying do this we're saying cultivate sila sila is the pali word for ethical practice. We're saying to cultivate it. We're not saying be ethical. We're saying cultivate ethics, not be mindful. You can fail. Be mindful. Well, when we sit down and our mind goes off into la-la land, you could say, you know, but, but it's, not, um, it's not be mindful. It's cultivate mindfulness. It's cultivate, cultivate sila. And so it becomes a kind of practice which is intended to lead to wisdom, to understanding, by putting our attention right up against the conditions of our lives and figuring out how best to live in a way that attenuates, um, that alleviates suffering. You know, the question that we ask, I guess, is, is what I'm about to do, or is what I'm doing, or is what I have done, is it uh, going to alleviate suffering or enhance it? Is it going to be for the benefit of myself and others, or for the detriment? And sometimes, of course, it's not possible to know the consequences of your action. You basically are left with being able to measure your own intention, what your intention is. 
uh, because you know there's many a slip twixt cup and lip, and the best intentions can go awry. Although I don't believe the old axiom about the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I think the road to hell is paved with greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, uh, I remember John Mitchell testifying at the Watergate hearings that he really he had good intentions. He thought the president needed to be reelected, and so he was willing to do all these things because his intention was good. I, I guess that sort of speaks for itself. But since we're, we're talking about the cultivation uh, of intention, which, uh, you know, right intention is the second uh, element of the uh, Eightfold Path. Since we're talking about cultivating intention, we're talking about uh, working with karma, because for the Buddha, karma was intention. He was very explicit about it. Karma is, you know, we have, we have these understandings about karma that come from our popular culture. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they're, they're fun, but they aren't really what the Buddha had in mind. For the Buddha, karma was intention because our intention is what we, what we have to live with. Um, if, if our intentions are skillful, um, we are likely, well, the, the Buddha said that the, the, the result of living in accord with the Dharma, in accord with, with the Eightfold Path and the, the precepts, is the bliss of blamelessness. And the suffering that comes otherwise is the, is the suffering that comes with remorse. Um, so it's not, and we all know remorse and um, well, we do. <laughs> it's my guess. Uh, if you don't, you can hold up your hand. Um, and actually, at any point, please feel free to. Uh, to interrupt and, and ask a question if, if one arises. So we're talking about cultivating uh, karma, we're talking about cultivating intention, and um, using the precepts as uh, a tool for doing that, and, and, and cultivating insight, insight into the nature of, of suffering. And we do it by practicing behaviors. And so we list the behaviors this way, in the same way that we cultivate the intention of generosity by practicing giving, the word dana actually translates as most directly as giving, and the word for generosity is a, is a different word, chaga, and so we cultivate generosity by practicing giving. We cultivate the intention to not harm by practicing uh, uh, behavior towards other beings. Uh, we practice restraint of those impulses which arise within us, which, when they sweep us away, can get us into trouble and uh, and make things worse for ourselves and others. You know, practicing the precepts is interesting. It reminds me of a of an account. Uh, a Tibetan teacher once was talking with a, with a student that I know 
who, and he was complaining that he didn't feel compassionate. And the teacher said, I didn't ask you to feel compassionate, I asked you to be compassionate. So we don't have to feel um, compassionate, but we can observe. The precepts means keeping them in mind. When we don't keep them in mind, it's not a failure, it's just we're not practicing right then. You know, we practice as, as uh, according to our intention, and, and we practice according to our understanding of the importance. Because intention always, f- please. So, Tony, uh, that's an interesting example because uh, to be compassionate and not feel compassionate, do you still have to have the intention to be compassionate? The intention would be to, we're, we're trying to cultivate compassion. The intention would be to behave compassionately. So we can recognize what that is. You know, it's, um, there's, Sharon Salzberg uh, once suggested that uh, a particular practice in relation to generosity, for example, she said if you have an impulse to be generous, and you probably will recognize this, and then you have a second thought, and then you, you don't go through with the generous action because your second thought, your reconsideration, you thought better of, of it for whatever you've been there. And her suggestion was, unless there's a real reason not to, go ahead with that, even if you have a second thought as a practice. You know, if, you're, if your generous impulse is to give away all your wealth, all your, all your um, everything of value, your, you know, the second thought might be worth heeding <laughs> at, at, at some point. But, but the idea is generally most, most often there's an impulse and then a, a holding back. So in this case we, we, we use the, the behavioral um, practice to help cultivate the, the, uh, um, the inner impulse. And so we, we practice these, these five uh, precepts, or we practice one or two. I remember the first time I ever took the precepts. I just love the, I, I guess it's because they're taken as a vow or as a resolve. And actually that's an important, that's an important distinction. There's a, there's a difference between a resolve and a wish. And a precept practice is about resolve, about um, uh, rather than, than a wish. So you can, you can wish you could, I don't know, quit smoking and think you should quit smoking, but not resolve to quit smoking. Or I, I wish I could lose weight, so I'm going to... I wish I could live on, I could stick to 1,500 calories a day. You know, there, you, know you, can, you can wish that, but wishing to observe uh, wise speech is about the same. I think I ought to do that. But the question is whether or not there's a resolve there, whether there's a commitment. And the first time I ever took the precepts, the vow, the vows, uh, with Thich Nhat, was with Thich Nhat Hanh, and his, his uh, invitation was to take one, or two, 
before I remember I was standing next to a guy, he would, and for Thich Nhat Hanh, the fifth precept is not about uh, refraining from drugs and alcohol that cause heedlessness. I mean, he wanted absolute uh, abstention from alcohol. And I was standing next to a guy who was saying, geez, I've got a huge wine cellar. What do I do if I you know, adopt this precept? But Thich Nhat Hanh's position was work with one, work with two, work with the ones that you, but work with them. And, you know, so we were, when we were invited to take each of the precepts, it was possible to just pass on one. Because these are, these are, these are rules that we adopt for ourselves, for our own practice, for our own, for the growth of our own wisdom. And they show up in, in right speech and right action. And that leaves the fourth, or the, uh, the third element, which is um, a much more uh, ambiguous. Let's see, I closed, I closed it up on. Wanted to, oh, there it is. Um, what does right livelihood mean? I think it's an interesting. It's an interesting question because. For the Buddha, most of the time, he was talking with, uh, he was addressing monastics, and right livelihood is not an issue for the monastics. The monastics are entitled to the four requisites, food, clothing, shelter, medicine. And that is provided to them by others. They stand with their bowl and receive. We've got a slightly different, for those of us, for lay people, um, it's a slightly different situation. We have to actually create our livelihood. This is what the Buddha said. It's, it's, there's not much in the texts that he suggests, but this is, um, this is what he said. He said, these five trades, O monks, should not be taken up by a lay follower. Trading in weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poisons. I'm not sure. I mean, if you managed a Safeway, you you know you you got all that stuff in there, even weapons. I mean, there's enough chemistry in the. So, are you supposed to say no? I'm not going to work in Safeway. And we got a, a slightly more complicated uh, situation in 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 our world, and the, the trick, it seems to me, is to figure out how to infuse the Dharma into our lifestyle. And that's the question that everybody asks at the end of retreat. How do we bring this into our day-to-day? And certainly, sila practice is, um, is, is the way to do it. And right livelihood um, is... I mean, it's, as, as it's an eighth of the Eightfold Path. It's as much of a hunk of the Eightfold Path as right mindfulness. And so I'd like to, to just think a little bit about it because, again, the, the, the applicable standards, I mean, we use the word right, and it sort of implies wrong, but it's really not about right or wrong. It's about whether or not we're enhancing or attenuating dukkha, the purpose of the Eightfold Path and the purpose of right livelihood, the function, 
is to cultivate right livelihood for the purposes of attenuating our suffering. So the, the applicable standards are those relating to dukkha and not moral judgment. Judgment can go live somewhere else, and it does almost everywhere, but um, for the purposes of our practice. <clears throat> for the purposes of our practice, at the bottom, right, livelihood is, exists for the purpose of our practice. So the question is, how do we, how will we provide our livelihood? Um, and that question is a koan that we answer with our lives. Everybody know what a koan is? People not know what a koan is? Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a koan. It's not just a job. It's, I, I think of it now more as, um, uh, I, I, I don't like the word lifestyle. My wife sort of snickers at me when I talk about it in terms of lifestyle, but it includes um, the lifestyle that we create for ourselves. Because um, you know, none of us exist independent in this culture. If it's, I mean, if you check out what is in your possession at the present time, any of us have anything on us that we made from scratch. I mean, really from scratch. We purchase our our our, uh, our livelihood. We purchase our lifestyle with money, which is an abstraction. So it's not like be a you know a water buffalo herder or a merchant. Uh, it's not. I mean, we we actually create a lot. You know, the lot, the range of lifestyles can be you know really huge depending on the resources available to us at, at, uh, at the time. Um, and so there's, there's a balance, there's an economy, a personal economy here between the lifestyle that we create and the, the one that we finance and the, and the means by which we finance it. And the moral element, I mean, it's, it, it is, I mean, is, a, is there a particular kind of livelihood that, I mean, are you not supposed to run a Safeway because you're trading in meat and maybe even in living beings? If you've got an oyster pound, uh, an oyster display or, you know, a lobster thing in the fish, I mean, you, uh, so you could be dealing with, with all of them. Um, what if you're um, and, and everything is so interdependent is being a file clerk right livelihood or wrong livelihood what if it's a file clerk for Halliburton <laughs> my own bias shows there um, please excuse that <laughs> um, what if you're what if you're and what if you have no choice you know, if you live in Morency, Arizona, and you don't work in the copper mine, what are you going to do? You know, or Harlan County, Kentucky, work in the coal mine. 
Um, so, so the actual the actual activity, uh, Temple Grandin. You people know who Temple Grandin is. So, just a truly remarkable woman. She's uh, autistic, uh, high functioning. She's a PhD in animal studies from Northwestern, I believe, and she's dedicated her life to providing cattle with the most humane slaughter possible, so that they. Well, is that You know how does that how does that fit in? I mean, in my view, it it fits in in terms of her intention, because again, these the precepts the precepts and sila is about is about your intention. Is is it is it possible um, to be a police officer? Um, that could that be right livelihood, and even, and even with the use of force involved, I, you know the, the the fact that our lives are so embedded in all aspects of uh, the world. George Orwell, there's a great quote of George Orwell's that I've that I've enjoyed since I came across it, and now I can't find it. <laughs> um, it's been ages, but the, but it struck me and. Um, it, it, he said, um, we sleep soundly in our beds because harsh men stand ready in the night to visit violence on those who would harm us. You know, and, I, and I thought of the, the people in Egypt the other night standing outside in their neighborhoods with knives and sticks because it was crazy out there and they were protecting their families and their, their homes. We're just blessed with, I mean, we really are, if you look at the planet and the conditions of human life on the planet, with, with relative peace. But if the intention is genuinely to protect and serve, and the precept about not, not taking life, what if you were standing outside a mall? in Tucson, Arizona, when some guy starts shooting the place up? Do you just say, I can't strike at a living being, I can't, or do you take an action to stop him? If you were an armed officer, would, your, would the correct response be to just swallow the karma and take it on for the benefit of those whose suffering you were going to uh, um, prevent? You know, at a, at a and then then of course there's there's you know because of the way our society is set up, there's the wonderful possibility. What if you were running an internet, you were an internet service provider, and you provided space uh, on your servers for websites? Are you supposed to prevent the publication of certain kinds of speech? Are you supposed to be a judge of speech of what you're going to put up there? Yes or no? If no. Then what happens when, you know, I don't know, the KKK starts put, you know, decides it wants to, and if you say yes, well then, um, how are you going to do that? You know, I think I actually haven't figured that one out. I think I think that's a lose lose. Um, 
that may be just wrong livelihood because you, <laughs> there's no way to make it work. And I, or, or I guess you can, I don't know, I haven't figured that one out. I would dodge that myself. Maybe you're braver than I am. Um, but at a minimum, the means by which we create uh, the material support for our life shouldn't uh, interfere with our awakening. And we're the only ones who can know whether that is the case. So these precepts, these practices, are for our own benefit. You know, we have to, so we have to create our livelihood, we have to finance it, um, fund it, and then we construct it. You know, what do we do with our extra, I, you know, with our spare change? Um, do we upgrade our car or do we send it to, uh, I don't know, to Haiti or Burma? What do we do? How do we do that? Do we spend our, how do we spend our time, our free time? Um, what do we need? You know, this, the purpose here is, is uh, to initiate an investigation. Investigation is the second of the elements of the, uh, second of the factors of awakening, following mindfulness, to examine and to look more closely. Um, do we need do we need a car and a credit card? We may have an ideological position. We don't need one, but then how come we've got one? <laughs> um, and maybe we do. Do we need specialized skills? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer here. Do we need a TV? There are plenty of people who get along without a TV, and then there are people who who don't. I have one. Two, three, four, five TVs in my house. Um, so I'm not somebody who can get along with a TV. It seems to be. Um, do we need the internet? You know, do we need it? What does that mean to need it? And these are, you know, this isn't a, a, a judgment. Uh, they're good or bad. It's just to investigate our lives. When we open, when we look into those, into that screen, that screen looks back. There is a a an, an interface between our nervous system and and the internet. It's conditioning us as we are working with it. So right, right livelihood, it seems to me, is an exploration, an investigation of how we live. So right livelihood is an investigation itself. Um, you know, being mindful. Living today is like this. You know, with mindfulness practice, we'll say, well, you know, um, breathing is like this. Breathing in is like this. Anger is like this. Ah, it is like this. 
living today is is like this. In the in the uh, meta sutta, the phrase uh, one of the, the a popular translation of the phrase is unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Uh, maybe that may be as much of a standard of right livelihood as as I can come up with. Um, only we know whether we're burdened. What might burden one person might be a lark for another. And frugal for one person, you know, Barbara Streisand, I understand, cut back from three mansions, from five mansions to three. So, you know. Um, uh, but I could be wrong. It could have been from four to two. or But she was, you know, she was, she was, Cutting back. Um, so, right livelihood, like the other precepts, are about are about karma because they're about our intention and they flow from our understanding of how we should live, how we should be. You know, very, very. Please. You use the term should. In which, in, when did I use the term should? You used it several times. Can you repeat the phrase? I can't remember. I, yeah. I, I, I can't give you the, the, okay. the, the, the exact words you used, but you, I noticed you used it like three times. Yeah, I could have. And I shouldn't do that. To me, that word is, is fraught with suffering. It is fraught with suffering. Usually, the word should um, is a reflection of clinging to a belief about the way things should be. And, you know, when you cling to a belief about the way things should be, oh my gosh, things are almost never going to be that way. And so that's why it sets you up for suffering. Because then you can't see the way things are. All you see is the way it's not the way you want it to be. You know? As you could say, um, <coughs> It, sh- you know, it should be X. You say, yeah, but it's Y. I know it is Y, but it shouldn't be Y. It should be X. And, that, and we just find it very difficult. In fact, if, if, we, if, if someone says, we need to accept the way things are, then we get defense. Oh, am I supposed to just resign myself? Am I supposed to be passive? But you, you're right. And I, I don't know what, what the context was. Um, I guess, because um, I didn't hear myself say it. That's the essence of delusion. <laughs> Please. Tony, could you repeat uh, from the Buddha the five things, yeah. five occupations and... The five trades. He calls, five trades. Or, I don't know. I, sure. It's English, it's trades. Yeah. I don't know what the Pali is. That's fine. These five trades, O oh monks, should not be taken... Uh-oh, see? There we go. Should not be taken, and 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 I guess, and I and I guess in this case he's he means in terms of. Boy, did you remember that was in there? The it, he's for the purposes of for the purposes of putting an end to suffering. This is what one should do. No. Take up 
And so as that your insight or wisdom deepens, you may be able to distinguish more, um, more granularity in your experience. And, and that insight generates more intention to, to you know, enhance your own effort. Um, but even effort requires insight. How do you know which, where to turn the gain up? You know, because we live, uh, I mean, the condition of dukkha is delusion. One of the conditions that gives rise to dukkha is delusion. And so how do we recognize when we are deluded? You know, <laughs> how, how do we, you know, Ajahn Pasano, I think I talked about this last week, Ajahn Pasano suggested because we're suffering, but we don't even recognize when we're suffering. It's like, you know, the refrigerator's on in the other room and you're sitting there and all of a sudden it goes off and you go, wow, I didn't realize that was making that noise. You know, now it's really quiet. Well, you know, there's, it's the been down so long it looks like up to me kind of thing. Uh, we don't even register some of the dissatisfaction. We, we, we just don't even experience it that way. So my, the, you know, I find for myself that... that um, if I'm finding the precepts difficult to keep in mind, the, that probably is, is a, a good clue to me. Um, you know, if we're finding practicing the precepts tough or hard to remember or hard to, to um, uh, you know, keep in mind, uh, I'm off on a, in La La Land somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so they're all, and, and it, it brings mindfulness, because it's not just wisdom, it's mindfulness, to be able to see, to, to be able to notice your own intention, to see the situation, understand it as it is, to know these are Nazis, and that, you know, if you tell the truth, it's going to lead to the death of somebody. Um, so all elements, and, and it requires stability, concentration, stability of the mindfulness so that you can you know, stay with the changing uh, impulses that arise and thoughts so that you aren't distracted. So all elements of the Eightfold Path are engaged at once and right livelihood is part of it. It has to do uh, right lifestyle if you, as, as I think of it because it includes the lifestyle we create that we, that we you know, that that uh, the word that came to my mind there was encrusts <laughs> us, um, you know, that, that we finance with, with the me- our means of, of making a living. So I guess the general, because, it's, because it really is a, a, um, uh, a broad economy between the production of our lifestyle and the creation of it, it the question ultimately, I guess, or comes down to, uh, how's it going? <laughs> and to investigate that, um, and to investigate that in terms of uh, our, own, our own dissatisfaction. So right speech, right action, life, right livelihood, the, the elements, the seal elements of the path are 
um, central. They're not extra. Um, they're requisites for the, the end of suffering. And, um, and the, Buddha, the Buddha, in the Dhammapada, he said, the, the summary of the teachings of the Buddhas of all times, avoid evil, practice the good, and cultivate the mind. And he starts with, with the uh, sila elements. He doesn't say meditate and then get your act together. It's get your act together. And cultivate your mind so that you can figure out how to do it. So they're directly involved in our liberation. So any... Uh, just take a minute or two to see if there are any other questions or comments or thoughts or puzzlements. Please. I just uh, had a comment because I remembered a Buddha quote that I read once. They said that... Um, I forget what the Pali word for wisdom was, but he said that sila, panya, and, panya, and mm-hmm. wisdom is like your left hand and your right hand when you're washing your hands. Like sila washes, like your, if you practice sila, your wisdom will get better. And if, you, if your wisdom gets better, then you're better able to practice sila. So they kind of complement each other like that in a cycle. Uh, that's, that's right. The more deeply you can see, the more your behavior will not make things worse. <laughs> the more skillful your, your behavior will, will come, will become. And that's the, you know, when we talk about wholesome and unwholesome or skillful and unskillful, it's skillful at attenuating dukkha, somehow alleviating dukkha. The more deeply you see, the better you can do it. The better you do that, when, when you come up against a situation where the precept may be ambiguous, what do I do about all these ants on the counter? They've been here for a month. <laughs> I put up signs. I talked to them. <laughs> I warned them. What do I do? You know? When it, when it pushes that investigation into, in, and inside it deepens wisdom. So yeah, wisdom deepens sila and sila deepens wisdom. The practice uh, of sila and the practice of, of mindfulness meditation all deepen wisdom. Yeah? Is there a concept of evil in Buddhism? It's not that I know of. Gil translate. Oh, the the question was: Is there a concept of evil in Buddhism? Not that I'm not that I'm aware of. Now, the the translation um, when I from the Dhammapada, avoid evil, uh, is a translation of a Pali word papa, which means, which refers to the the actions which lead us into samsara and into dukkha. To, to make things intentionally, uh, to make things worse. 
And that's just the translation of that. And Gill talks a little bit about why he chose that particular translation in the introduction to his translation of the Dhammapada, why he used that particular word. Um, Because when you're translating word for word, there's not real parallels. So what is meant in that translation is not what we mean in the the Judeo-Christian context. Is that is that helpful? Yeah, it's just it's confirming something I had read recently, and yeah. Um, My understanding is that you know in in our culture we've got we've got a very deep original sin thing going. We think you know in this culture, well you know it's it came out of the out of the uh, being expelled from the Garden of Eden because we were bad. Um, and that, and, and once you set that up, that inherently there's something wrong with us, then we need to be saved, and we can't save ourselves. So, you, you know, it leads to something outside of us has to save ourselves. In the East, the di- it's a little different. The idea is that we are pure originally, and that the defilements visit. They visit the mind, they color the mind. Uh, they, we, when we follow them or are deluded by them, uh, we we go astray and cause harm for ourselves and others. But that um, our, our efforts to clear the deluse, delusion, um, they're our own efforts, and we, are, we're, we have to do that, otherwise nobody to do it for us. You know, there's no savior. Um, the Buddha was a teacher. I struggled with this concept when I, uh, in June, I was visiting Dachau, the concentration mm-hmm. camp, and there were lots of people around, and the word evil was being thrown around, and, and I had also been coming here and realizing that the behavior of the, let's call them perpetrators of the, of the suffering, mm-hmm. that their thoughts about and their justification for what they were doing were products of their mind, not from Judeo-Christian, diabolical, devil evil. Yeah. Yeah. Joanna Macy, uh, I heard her speak once, so this quote I attribute to her, she said, the enemy is not flesh and blood. The enemy is greed, hatred, and delusion. Delusion. So I thank you for your attention.